Welcome, everybody, to the Nightclub Interview Series, where my guest today is my dear friend, Elizabeth Matisnamgyal. But before we get started, as usual, a few housekeeping items. I'm really pretty jazzed that my latest book was just released, Dreams of Light, The Profound Daytime Practice of Lucid Dreaming. This is a really deep dive book, uh, probably my densest, thickest offering yet. And as a way to facilitate an understanding of this tome, we are going to be launching a book study group starting in September, September 22nd. So you'll find a link to that on the nightclub site attached to this talk. Also, there is an upcoming program I'm doing with Yogaville, a wonderful organization on the East Coast. That's going to be over the Labor Day weekend, and you'll find the link for that also attached to this upcoming interview. But today, really so excited to spend this time with my dear friend Elizabeth and talk about um, her first book, The Power of an Open Question, where we discuss in some detail how it is that questions really are more important than answers. And so we explore the notion of what's the rules for proper engagement in the process of inquiry? What really are the right questions? Also, some of the near enemies of being too open. Power of an open question is of great benefit on the spiritual path, but there are also some near enemies of being too excessively available and open. So join me in this conversation with Elizabeth. I think you'll agree with me that she's one of the great rock star teachers of Buddhism in the West, and certainly one that I had a tremendous good time engaging in conversation. So without further ado, here's our conversation. Hi everybody, Andrew Holacek here. And um, I often say this when I bring my guests on, you know, I'm super excited, but today I'm like really excited because one of my favorite people on the entire planet, Elizabeth Matasandel, <laughs> has agreed to spend some time with me. And full disclosure, I, I really adore her. I've known Elizabeth for decades and she truly is one of my absolute favorite people on this entire planet, as you will see or here in the, in the time that we will spend together. And so as usual, I will read a brief introduction about who she is, and then we're just gonna jump right in. So Elizabeth Matasamgyal has studied and practiced the Buddha Dharma for 35 years under the guidance of her teacher and husband, Zigar Kontra Rinpoche. She is the retreat master at Hampton Ling in Crestone, Colorado, and has spent over six years in retreat. She holds a degree in anthropology and an MA in Buddhist studies, teaches throughout the US, Australia, and Europe. She's also the author of The Power of an Open Question, The Buddha's Path to Freedom, and most recently, The Logic of Faith, The Buddhist Path to Finding Certainty Beyond Belief and Doubt. And so, Elizabeth, thank you so much for taking time to spend with us. Um, really, I've been looking forward to this for so long, and I finally get you for an hour or so. <laughs> Thanks so much, Andrew. I'm so delighted. I've, I haven't seen you for so long, so it's, we're really due for a conversation. Yeah. And you're one of my, my most favorite people to have a uh, conversation with. We've had absolutely. so many over the years. Yeah. I, I so appreciate it. And, and you know, I was going, I, was, I have both your books. I've read them both. They're just absolutely wonderful. And there's, even though they're relatively short, there's so much profound insight in these books that 
with your permission, I just want to concentrate or focus on the brilliance of your first book, The Power of an Open Question. Oh, okay. And then maybe, ah, selfishly, it'll give me a chance to bring you back in about a year when we can <laughs> and talk about your second book. But what I want to do, I, I do want to situate this a little bit. So I'm going to indulge just for a second to talk about the, this theme of openness, because this, this mm. really is the narrative that I want to um, un unfold and unpack with you. And so I do have a few kind of preparatory comments, and then I'm gonna um, throw this completely um, in your direction so that we can start to unfold some of these ideas. But you know, the, this idea of opening is, is a massive one, um, especially for me. And, and in fact, I looked up some of the etymologies, the origins of the word Buddha, and of course, it's famously, most archetypally uh, translated as like the awakened one. But there are a number of scholars that also refer to the Sanskrit root B-U-D-H as the opened one or to open up. And, and so I find that such a compelling um, rendering of that term. And I think for so many reasons that I, that I hope to bat around with you today. But in terms of the way this relates to your first book, I wanted to actually read a little bit from two of my kind of scientific and intellectual heroes that you may or may not know actually talked about the power of open questions in a really mm. brilliant way. And so this is uh, the work of uh, the neuroscientist Francesco Varela oh, and wonderful. my dear friend Evan Thompson. And so this is what um, Evan wrote in the prologue to his marvelous book um, that, is called Waking, Dreaming, Being, Self and Consciousness in Neuroscience, Meditation and Philosophy. And so this is what he says, just to realize, just to show you, Elizabeth, uh, in what good company you're hanging out with when you <laughs> relate to things. <laughs> so this is what Evan says. Francesco Varela's position is to suspend judgment. Don't neglect the Buddhist observations and don't dismiss what we know from science. Instead of trying to seek a resolution or an answer, contemplate the question and let it sit there. Mm. Have the patience and forbearance to stay with the open question. I tried to do so in this book. For a philosopher, staying with the open question means turning it around and examining it from all sides without trying to force any particular answer or conclusion but it also means not being afraid to follow wherever the argument leads. To stay with the open question while following wherever the argument leads requires that we, resolute, that we be re resolutely empirical in our approach. By this I mean cleaving to experience and suspending judgment about speculative matters falling outside what's available to experience. Experience includes inward experience of the mind and body gained through meditation and outward experience of the world gained through scientific observation and experimentation. In neither case can there be genuine knowledge without communal testing and agreement on what the valid findings are. Buddhism and science both share this critical and experiential stance. So I just wanted to throw that out to, to basically support what you did in your book and to really um, start to open up the conversation to just how important it is to send the mind in particular directions. That's what questions investigations do, 
but to do so within this kind of open aperture of, of awareness, the, the power of the open question. And so let me just start with a, a more general question, and then I have a series of things I want to specifically kind of um, come down to. But what inspired you to write your book? What really was a trigger, the catalyst for putting pen to paper here? Yeah. Um, well, I was in retreat for many years. Um, and I think I, I was still in retreat when I wrote that book. Um, and uh, Kong Furumshi said, why don't you write a book? And I said, well, what should I write it about? And he said, I don't know, you decide. <laughs> so so I, I think I have a kind of predilection to, to, always, be a, to always approach things through questions. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't think I realized it at the time. I had a lot of questions and some of them were agitating about uh, the Dharma, about this idea of faith. I just, I was, you know, as a Dharma practitioner, you don't just believe something and that's it. Or you don't just discover something and that's it. You know, that's how life is, not just uh, Dharma practice or spiritual practice. But it's this ongoing interface with the world and you're learning and you're, you know, influencing the world around you. And, and you know, so there's this kind of exchange. And I had my own, I'm very interested when I get agitated by things. It means there's a place to look for me. So I thought I'd just start asking myself my questions, all kinds of questions, you know, questions about my practice or when I got stuck, questions about the kind of heaviness sometimes I would face or questions about why sometimes I feel completely open and connected, you know, and this is kind of, this is how I learn and this is how I practice. So what I did was I allowed myself to write this book while I walked mm. and I walked, you know, I live at the, a bay, uh, the western slope of the Sangre de Cristo mountains. So my backyard are these, you know, 14, these 14,000 foot peaks. And so I can walk up, you know, anywhere. So I, I spent a certain amount of time every day walking through the mountains. I'd start at the base and I'd ask myself a question and I just, I just allow the information to reveal itself to me because you know the open question the mind of an open question when i say that it's a mind poised for insight mm -hmm. it's like how do we poise our mind to receive information mm -hmm. um i don't think that i'm ever going to find a, a, a definitive answer to anything actually so when i use this term open question i this is just like a, an, a metaphor for a practice mind, the mind that is engages the, the practice itself, the spiritual practice or the spiritual quest. So um, it's a mind of inquiry, right? When we ask a question. Mm -hmm. So a lot of times we ask a question, when we ask a question, we already have an answer. Right. You know, we already have an idea of what we think it should be. And then we just wait to hear what someone else says. Um, but, and then we argue with it, the answer that they give us. But what I came to discover is that actually you can poise your mind in that open and curious way. And when I do that, I really enjoy my mind. And when my mind is shut down around an answer, I find that I immobilize my intelligence and my creativity. Yeah. So that's the open part. And then, yeah, so the open question means that you're, you're actually poised for 
a surprise. You know, you're, you're curious and you're um, searching and allowing. And I do find, you know, we often think open is very vague. Yeah. And question is ignorant. But in fact, what I found is if we can uh, protect ourselves from being a knower, it, we don't fall into extremes of belief and doubt, which I think are the two, uh, well, the Buddha taught about belief and doubt when he talked about eternalism and nihilism. Yeah. You know, belief shuts you off from learning. Doubt also, um, you know, when I say doubt, I don't mean just intellectual skepticism like inquiry, but I mean shutting down. Like your beliefs, uh, when your beliefs don't hold up, you fall into doubt. There's this kind of binary uh, relationship that mm -hmm. you, you never get anywhere. So anyways, I don't know if I answered. <laughs> yeah, no, that's great. I, I have to toss into the mix. It's really interesting when you were talking about walking up into the hills because, you know, I'm a Gemini. I, I love word origins. And mm. actually the origin of the word open is connected to the word up. And oh, I mean, how interesting is that? And I also thought of that in relation to Contra Rinpoche's book, it's up to you in terms oh, of like yeah. open to you. So I, yeah. I think it's, it's, it's lovely, isn't it? That, that opening the mind in this, in this regard also is an invitation to receptivity. It's mm. a, really an invitation to insight because, um, you know, almost by definition, the egoic way is, is contracted, closed down, um, self-righteous, defensive, offensive, and the like. And, and what really struck me about what you're doing with your book is how historically resonant it is in, in both Eastern and Western thought. You know, I mean, Socrates knew how to ask the right yes. questions. And in fact, he, he asked them to the extent that it cost him his life. Mm -hmm. the, the Buddha was, I, I would say, and I'm very curious to see how this lands with you, Elizabeth, is I think the Buddha was much more interested in questions than in answers yes. and i think it's it wouldn't it be fair to say that it's more important to question our answers than to answer our questions i mean isn't yes. that really a, a fair way to work uh, with the spiritual um, path and inquiry altogether very fair and also effective <laughs> it's the approach that we need and you know i i think you're you're it's so true that the buddha taught in relationship to questions he taught when asked a question and i often think of for example the heart sutra mm. the heart sutra is a response to the question of shariputra right. he asked a question and he opened up uh, uh, this whole incredible description of the nature of emptiness for everyone. Absolutely. And, and really, I think in many ways, you know, there's this, this kind of classic description of the Buddha as the divine physician. I think that that's legitimate, you know, the diagnosis, the, the prognosis, the prescription, etc. But I find, I find him often, especially when I do the kind of classic investigations, you know, like Mahamudra investigations, mm. questions into the nature of mind, that it's equally as valid to talk about the Buddha as the divine attorney. In many ways, with these really skillful questions, he leads the witness. Yes. It's, it's, like, it's like the questions are such, and, and this is where the real discoveries come from. They don't really come from being spoon-fed. They come from sending the mind on this kind of really scientific journey where then the insights and the ahas come within your own, and that's the real power. Mm -hmm. And so with that in mind, what are, what are some of the other right questions? I mean, when, when someone is on the path, 
um, what are the best ways to even ask the right questions? Yeah, this is what I found. I find very interesting because in a certain way, I don't think there are any right questions. I think they're just your questions. Mm. But what I do notice for myself, and I think interesting, one of the things I like about my mind or I like about other people's mind, you know, I can always, I think we're talking about the best part of one's mind, openness, curiosity, interest, mm. um, humility, these are things, don't we all like that in ourselves and others? It's like a, a, almost a refuge, this kind of mind. Um, but I always say, identify your questions. And sometimes your questions are where you get stuck. Hmm. You know, what's uncomfortable for you? Hmm. Um, you know, I have, I have questions come up constantly and I'm always going into them. And sometimes I have to laugh at myself because it's like I always have to go really into things. Sometimes I struggle and grapple a lot with things. And then I come out the other side and it's like I've done, I don't know, somehow I've, I've worked it out and I, I'm open to that process, you know. Um, so I never would want anyone to think that they didn't have a valid question. It's like uh -huh. wherever you something doesn't seem to be working or something that agitates you. Uh, for example, you know, I didn't even, when my, my second book, The Logic of Faith, I was having some um, questions and I feeling some discomfort around the word faith because mm. as an experience, I was very um, inspired. I feel I have a lot of faith, but the word itself as a cultural narrative is very agitating and we associate it with fundamentalism and, you know, dogma. And I'm not interested in those things. Those are what the opposite of open questioning. So that's how that book came about. But, you know, that's where you go is where you feel, uh, um, where, you're, where, you, where you struggle. Yeah. Or yeah. that's how I see it. I think that's really fantastic. And so you started to uh, kind of hit on this, but what, what kind of guidelines um, for engaging, rules of engagement, what, what are the proper guidelines that you've discovered for, for working with a proper question? Um, you mentioned just a few, but tell us a little bit more about how you work uh, through contemplation, mm -hmm. through formal practice, maybe even through dreams. When, when something really lands with you that you want to investigate, what are the, what are the rules of engagement for mm -hmm. types of uh, processes? Yeah, you know, there's a couple things I do. It's a good question, Andrew. And, you know, one of the things is that I, I look at the question in a way that it really means something to me. Um, I really ask it from the heart. Uh, you know, the thing about faith was something I really needed to, to understand or, you know, there's just things in the world right now in particular, you know, the things about race too for me, I really provoke a lot and I have a lot of questions. So I, I come from the heart and I, it feels like a prayer. It mm. feels like I'm having a conversation with the world. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I, I feel like I'm at, I, it's not like it's a theistic kind of asking I just know that I can't separate myself from the world in which I live. Mm. And I know when I ask a question, I always get a response. Yeah. I'm, you know, I don't even like the word answer. I know I asked you if I answered your question, but actually right. I always call it questions and responding mm -hmm. because there is no determinate answer to anything. But I know if I open my mind and I'm, I'm, I have that open question and from the heart I ask, what I'm curious about, the world will, will respond to me always, always. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's the magical part of it. 
it's not really magical because it's like you're leaving yourself open mm -hmm. to see something. Yeah. So yeah. it could have been all around you the whole time, but you frame your world in a certain way that way. And another way I approach things, and this is maybe where we both have something in common, I always look things up in the dictionary. Right. If I have a word, I usually start looking up a word and seeing, because we assume uh, language is not a determinate structure, you know, it means different things in different contexts at different Absolutely. times for different people. So like I opened up the, you know, the term faith, for example, and I, there's so many opposing views. And from there, I started, it helps you look at your assumptions about it. And then you also have to look at your own experience, you know? Mm -hmm. So it, it's, it's fascinating, uh, to, I think, to start looking at language because language really defines what we see. And, you know, we think that things are limited to what we think about them, but th th life bursts from the seams of our ideas. Beautiful. Yeah. You know, life... Uh, the life is, so, is, is like the territory where the words are like the map. Yeah. So the map is one-dimensional or abstract, whereas the words are like wow, everything's coming alive, you know? Um, so, you know, I like, I don't know, I, this book you recommended to me, Andrew, um, Fuzzy Thinking, I think it oh, was. Oh, yeah, Fuzzy, fuzzy Logic. And, yeah, fuzzy, fuzzy Logic, logic fuzzy, fuzzy Thinking. thinking. Yeah, beautiful. Well, I always read the books you recommend to me, by the way. <laughs> they are always amazing books for me. And this book I read, and in it, Bart Costco is paraphrasing Einstein when he said, if something is 100% um, true, it doesn't describe the world. Isn't that beautiful? Yeah. It's so beautiful. It's that's a little bit of emptiness there. Yeah. Moving out of like concepts and um, limitations in that way and seeing that things are, are not limited to what you think they are. Um, life is so full and so um, incredible. And if you think about it, then what we're talking about now is the object or the nature of the object, the nature of the world that we experience. What kind of mind can understand that things are not limited to what we think about them yeah. is only an open question mind. Yeah. Yeah. That's beautiful. And so when you, and so when you ask these questions and I really, I, I completely relate to what you're saying, Elizabeth, you know, the world responds in kind. Do, do you find that you're more actively looking for, you know, this kind of symbolic guru or, or you simply just find um, your, the world just speaks more directly as a response. And does this also register, for instance, in your dreams? I mean, have, have you had any experience yeah. like incubating a dream, seeding a dream with yeah. a particular question? Have you worked with it in those lines as well? Yeah, good question. Well, I feel it's more of a direct communication with the world in which I live. And it, and it feels very respectful of the world. Hmm. Like there's just, I have definitely decided that the world is my teacher, mm. you know, because my, I have a mind of an open question that poises your mind to see the world that way. Yeah. And w whether things are difficult or painful um, or beautiful, whatever, you know, because a lot of times the more difficult things that occur in one's life are the greatest teachers of all. So, I mean, this is what a Buddhist practitioner, this is how to practice. This is the spirit and attitude of practice. So how we poise our mind for insight, um, you know, in this way, then the world becomes your teacher. Like if you think you're a victim of the world, then right. the world is your enemy. Yes. But if you think the world, I have a friend, she's beautiful. Uh, 
Afro-Cuban artist. She teaches at Vanderbilt. Her name is uh, Maria Magdalena Campos Pose. If anybody has heard of her, she's, boy, she's something. Anyways, she says, I see the world. Uh, she says, the world is magical. And I said, that's because you see the world is magical. You yeah. know? And yeah. she liked, it's very true for her. Isn't I mean, it? Everything she does is like magical to me. And so, and, and to what extent do you, um, you know, because you're, you're so fortunate to have and also, I'm sure there's a handful of, of challenges um, being so intimately connected to your teacher, um, who's also your husband. Mm -hmm. To what extent do you still ask questions of others, like Kontorovice? I mean, you know, you have this beautiful um, kind of engagement with the phenomenal world, but to what extent do you still go directly towards uh, <laughs> sources of authority like Kontorovice? Yeah. Well, he, he's very interesting. I think he's a part of the reason that I think the way I do. Um, you know, he's written that book, It's Up to You. But he's also very inquiry-oriented. And, you know, I've been a student of his for 35 years. Mm. And boy, have I had a lot of teachings, both within the household context. I mean, there's so much training involved, but also just very traditional teachings and also middle way teachings, which um, have a lot of, uh, well, also the, the, you know, the teachings in the Vajrayana too. I have a lot of inquiry based meditations. Um, so, you know, there's just the spirit of that, but he has taught and taught and taught. And at some point I noticed he pulled back and made us rely more on ourselves mm. as students. Yep. Yep. Well, he'll teach formally, but he doesn't. I mean, if I want to ask him a question, of course, but he doesn't seem that interested in answering questions mm. at this point right now. And I think it has been an incredible gift. He's so skillful in that way. He really makes you rely on yourself. Yeah. Yeah. And he puts so much emphasis on... Um, independence, because you know, Andrew, I think we get lazy and we keep asking the teacher, but we yeah. should find our answers in our, our listening, our yeah. contemplation, and our meditation. Yeah, and I, I've also recently started to think along em empowerments, you know, the, because mm. the, whole, the Tibetan world, as you know extremely well, is just so rich with these Abhishekas, Wong's empowerments. And, and one of the, the ways I'm relating to this, I'll see, I want to see how this lands with you, Elizabeth, is that <laughs> I think one of the inner renderings of empowerments is just what, exactly what you're talking about, is, is in a certain sense conferring or, or transferring, you could say, um, a transference of power back to its original source so that you don't yeah. really need to rely on external um, entities. That The fundamental empowerment is just like Contra Rinpoche seems to be cultivating with you and his other students, is realizing that, you know, fundamentally we have everything we already need right yes. now. In fact, I heard yeah. you know, Deepak Chopra is charming and, and sometimes quirky as he can be. He's got a good, <laughs> and he once said something really quite nice. He said, he said all this effort to learn, but really fundamentally all we need to do is is open and remember, and yeah. and, and so yeah. I think I think that's also part of it. You know, the opening yeah, and this kind of transfer of power back to ourselves so that we can then do the science. We can do, mm -hmm. set the proper questions. We can come to make these kind of investigations and then come to these aha conclusions. Um, and, and really for me, Elizabeth, you know, that I think about some of the most foundational questions of my life. I mean, one is somewhat classic. 
is the one that, that really Ramana Maharshi made an entire kind of path out of, which is the archetypal question, who am I? I mean, that's mm -hmm. been a monumental um, kind of query in my life. And then somewhat akin to that, that I learned in my um, three-year retreat was, you know, where is mind? Not what is mind, but where is mind? Where, yeah. And yeah. I, I find that. So are you, do you have archetypal questions like that yourself that you're, that you're either comfortable sharing or willing to share with us, those that continue to poise yeah. your mind in particular um, path-oriented ways? Yeah, well, I think, you know, um, through inquiry, um, I actually think these teachings, um, like these questions like who am I or where is the mind, we have an actual method for very directly uh, uh, relating to those questions. We look in yeah. this tradition. Yeah. Like, it, let me just talk about the, Ma, the, the, the uh, Mahayana uh, middle way tradition. Totally. Of course, now this is also uh, holds true very much for Mahamudra and um, Dzogchen teachings. Um, although those often happen within the context of a transmission from a teacher, you know, which is very direct and very, um, there's a certain kind of very subtle communication that goes on between teacher and the student when the student is really ready for something, mm -hmm. ready to see something. But in the uh, Sutrayana tradition or the Mahayana tradition, the middle way tradition, um, we have actual what we call analytical meditation. It sounds so horrible, doesn't it? Who would <laughs> want to do an analytical meditation? But but what I'll say about that is actually I so I there that agitated me, the term analytical meditation. So I started to look into that word to analyze it. <laughs> I guess I'm analytical after all. So I I, start, I opened up the word, and what I found is that the Greek root for analysis means to loosen or set free. Oh, beautiful. And so what are we doing here? You know, we usually like analysis has some problems. It's like sometimes it feels when we're analyzing something, we reduce it to dust. Yeah. You know, yeah. Yeah. or it could be like we're doing a search on the internet and we're trying to find the best medication or something for something and we end up with too much information. Yeah. That's because both times we're looking for answers. I think that's, that's hard, determinate answers. And of course, in a world of relative relationships, you don't have determinate answers. It all depends yeah. on the context and the person, yeah. especially yeah. with medications. It's so complex, yeah. as you know. <laughs> oh, yeah. So, yeah. So, so um, we do a practice that's called looking in, well, I call it looking and not finding practice. Mm -hmm. That's what I would call analysis is we're looking for a self or we're looking where the mind is, or we're trying to find something that is a truth and is always true. So such a thing would have to be a singular or whole. Like if, it, mm -hmm. if something is to be a thing, it has to be a singular or a whole. It can't be made apart. So for example, me, I could, I'll just use myself as an sure. example. So who am I? This, this is your question or yep. no, not your question that's interested you. Well, it all depends. In, the, in relationship to my son, I'm a mother. In relationship to my mother, I'm a daughter. In relationship to when I go into a store, I'm a, a patron or a, a customer. When I go to the doctor, I'm a patient. You know, it, it, who I am is all uh, changing in the context of relationship. So I'm not a singular whole. And then if you look at our, you know, we can look at our physical bodies. The only reason we can move is because we're made of parts. 
you know, the body is always trying to find balance in the field of gravity and it's doing so and it can move and function because it's made of parts. Yeah. So when we start to look, can we find a singular whole? We can't. Everything is made out of parts, even what we call an atom. And I looked that one up. It means right. something that can't be broken. How much has come out of an atom in the 1950s? Right. I think it was called the particle zoo. We have quarks and, exactly. and neurons and pluton, whatever, strings. You know more about that than me. But um, all I know is a lot of theories have come out of that. So as long as you say there's a singular hole, it can be broken because it has sides. You know, anyways, this is a, you know, you could get really deeply into this. So we can't say things are a singular whole. And we can't say things are permanent either. So things are not singular or permanent because everything is in a state of flux because yeah. it's things are interdependent and moving and changing. And, and we can't say that there's anything that exists in and of itself outside the nature of contingent relationships. Yeah. You know, but we look and see. Yeah. Can we find something singular? Can we find something permanent? Can we find something that exists in and of itself outside the nature of relationship? And we can never find. Yeah. We can yeah. never find anything. So who am, who am I? We can't know. But this is what I say sometimes. We, I say, you know, I don't want to get too metaphysical or something here on the, you know, on a talk, talking it's okay. You abstract. Can. Okay. <laughs> Go for it. But, but I say, you know, we often think of ourselves as a member of a family or a member of a community or, a, you know, a, a, a citizen of a town or a country. But actually, what is our biggest citizenship? Who, what are we really a citizenship of is the nature of infinite contingencies. Mm, we are a nature of infinite relationships. Yeah. And so when we realize that that's who we are, we can't find a singular permanent or independent thing, but we can say this, you know, we are a member of this nature of infinite contingencies and everything we do matters. Yeah. Because if everything is contingent, then we're part of this sensitive system that affects others. But Absolutely. that also, if, we're if that's our true status as a being, then we also can't find a singular permanent or independent self. Yeah, boy, that's beautiful, Elizabeth. And, and a couple of things come to mind. One is your, your beautiful maxim, everything leans. I mean, that's such a beautiful <laughs> yeah. way of talking about it. But, but let, me, let me ask you this. So when, when, we, when we look, let's take, let's take this particular investigation. Um, in, in a certain way, we, you know, we kind of, spoiler alert, you know, the traditions say in, in experience eventually will bear out that not finding is the best finding. Mm -hmm. But but more specifically, as authentic investigators, um, how do we then honestly register the so-called answers? What what's the proper holding environment for an answer? Because sometimes you know, and I have some follow-up questions here. Sometimes the answer may not be what a particular bandwidth of your identity wants to hear. So maybe give us some advice about proper holding environments for answers, especially those that reveal harsh, noble truths that may not be that comfortable to the old uh, ego structure. Yeah, there's something about what we're talking about here that's very interruptive to what we would consider the system of ignorance or delusion, a confusion about who we are, you know? Yep. So I think sometimes it's very important to say 
that if, you know, everything is interconnected, everything we do matters. For one thing, it gives us, it gives us an identity as a functioning human being. Mm -hmm. It gives us instruction to be kind, to be compassionate, to be careful about how we live our life, you know, not to be vague. It's like, actually, it seems like this, this, what we're talking about pulls the rug out because you can't find a singular permanent or interdependent independent being there. Mm -hmm. But actually what it does is releases us to really be clear. Like if I'm a, I'm a mother in relationship to my son, it's good that I know what that means. Then when I leave that and go see my mother, it's like, what is this extra thing that we have to hold on to? We function better when we actually just see ourselves in relationship. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Do you think, don't you think? I, I find this true. So in a way, it's not saying there's no functional identity. You know, sometimes this is very important because, you know, we're living in a time of identity politics and all of this. And, you know, people are different and they have different struggles and they have different qualities and different gifts, you know, either individual people or groups of people. This is not an undermining of that. As a matter of fact, it's a real deep look at that in a real deep honoring of the causes and conditions that make us who we are. It, what this really means is we're just not static. We're yeah. so much bigger than what we think we are. Yeah. We're infinite. And you know, Andrew, I'll tell you, we're, we're, uh, we're just talking, so it's all audio, but just by coincidence, I'm wearing my favorite t-shirt and it has a big galaxy on it. <laughs> and then I'm sure you've seen this because it's so nerdy, but it has a big galaxy on the front or it tries to, show what the galaxy yep. looks like and then it has that pin in it and then right. it says you are here and the right. pin is kind of big like you know we have such a big idea of who we are right. and i was in the grocery store this morning and a lady says i love that it means we're insignificant and i thought well, yeah that is i guess that's one part of it right. that which is and i said isn't that a relief and she said yeah because if we're so important then we have this kind of burden that we can't fulfill like we want to fix the world so it should puts us in our place, you know, but at the same time, we're part of something bigger. Yeah. So yeah. it shows us we can't be diminished, but we can't, we're not, we can't get bloated. It kind of shows us who, what our real identity is, you yeah. know? Yeah. And, and this now, is exciting. Yeah. Oh, oh my gosh. Empowering. And, and now we're getting, now we're getting to the second phase of what I wanted to talk about. So this is a perfect, okay. this is a perfect segue into that, which is not, merely just the power of open question, but the power of openness altogether. And the minute we go here, we land in one of your all-time favorite topics, um, which is where I now want to transition. Because, yeah, I know what you're going to say. Yeah, because where you're, where you're going with this is, is just absolutely the crux of the entire uh, uh, affair that, you know, one of, one of my favorite working definitions of emptiness is, in fact, openness. Uh -huh, and yeah. it, it, the, what I thought about in relation to that, that t-shirt you're talking about is that, yes, you are here, you're insignificant, you're nothing, you're empty. But at the same time, your, your emptiness means fullness. So you're, you're empty of self-nature means full of others. So you may be yeah. insignificant in that kind of relative sense. But then when you back up, then it's also, you know, a larger way you shut out on the backside of that t-shirt is, you are here and then basically it, it, it denotes the entire cosmos, right? So, yeah, yeah, so. It mean, yeah, yeah, exactly. It means you're in relationship. 
you're defined you're defined kind of by the relationship you have to the world around you you know it it means yeah that that um you know if you don't make yourself a thing which is an interesting phrase that we use you know we say if somebody's about to kind of freak out just say don't make it a thing don't make it a thing like we want to reify or concretize an experience if we can bear the nature of infinite relationship yeah. and not close down around the object, which is a definition of practice. Yep. We can access what's creative and in most intelligent and most humble and connected about us. You know, this is, we often think, you know, the word emptiness, like if, if, if it's empty or open or it, we have this sense that it's vague or we can't function, right. but this is, this is the big misunderstanding because we think in terms of the, the idea of something either is or is not, mm -hmm. it exists or it doesn't. But here we're saying that you, when you look for it, you can't find it, but it's powerful and functional. You couldn't take away, and no matter how much you analyzed and couldn't find something true, singular, permanent, and independent, the world of the appearances and possibilities continues to arise. You couldn't stop it if you wanted to. So when we're analyzing, we're really just getting over our clinging to seeing things in a certain way, like binary. It is and it isn't. Yeah. Right. So this way, the Buddha said that things exist as one extreme, that they do not is another but I, the Tathagata, the Buddha, except neither is or is not, and I declare the truth from the middle position. And then the greatest sutra we have, the Heart Sutra, the most renowned sutra, says, Om Gate Gate Paragate Parasangate Bodhiswaha, which means gone, gone, gone beyond, gone completely beyond. What are we going beyond those binary extremes? Yeah. We're stepping out of a dualistic system to know something in a different way. So what this is saying is there's a different way of knowing. Yeah. And it's a mind that doesn't shut down around its object. Yeah. And this is, you know, yeah. this is this is the legacy of uh, Aristotle. You know, I mean, this Aristotle, yeah. the, the influence of Aristotle cannot be evaded mm. in his his rules of logic and, and the law of the excluded middle and all these things, whether we know it or not, we live in the shadow of Aristotle's binary legacy. Um, yeah. And so it's challenging it with these deeper investigations supported by the truth of the Buddhist teachings and, and whatnot is uh, not so easy to do, is it not? Because it, it really goes against the, this absolute tsunami of this Greek intellectual legacy tradition that we're all subscribers to, whether we know it or not. Yeah, yeah, interesting, yeah. And so I want to go back to the other thing you said here. It's such, there's so much to unpack here, but when you're talking about the fluidity of, of identity and how those kind of aspects of identity are brought about um, you know, depending on the various conditions that we're in, the context that we're in, to me, this is also the secret of skillful means of upaya. That mm -hmm. that fundamentally, um, once we realize the kind of um, empty, fluid nature of of who we are, and that's why asking questions like "Who am I?" becomes yeah. so central. Then what we do, it this ties into to the earlier riff we are going on that we have a, a much heightened, much um, greater cap capability of tuning in to those around us, to tuning into the world, yeah. to realizing the inextricable um, you know, interconnectivity we have with the world. 
And that if we don't abide by this kind of these deep ecological principles, I mean, one thing is we get what we're having now. You know, we get we get this kind of feedback with the virus, for instance. Mm. Um, and so, you know, to me, I, I throw this into the mix, Elizabeth, because just like you're saying, it's pretty easy for people when they start tiptoeing into um, teachings on emptiness, uh, the, the majamaga, these kind of seemingly theoretical tenets and practices that they're somehow, you know, esoteric and removed from yeah. lives. But, but it, there's nothing more exoteric. There's nothing more yes. practical yes. than working with I us. agree. So, so talk yeah. to us a little bit more about Thank that. Thank you, Andrew. Yeah, that, I really appreciate it. You how, that, that. how that has informed and transformed you. Because I have to say, you know, when, when I first started studying this stuff, I studied it purely as an intellectual nerd. I just, I, I, found, the, <laughs> yeah. I just found the gardener so brilliant in his logic, so blinding that I, I just became a kind of a, a, a geek on this stuff. And then, of course, I took it into retreat. And boy, oh boy, then when you start to ingest, I just metabolize these teachings, uh, it, it absolutely changed the way I relate and perceive everything. So talk to us yes. a little bit more about that journey within yourself, because you are, you are the queen of the Majamaka in the Western world. Oh, you think so? Oh, yeah. I love, <laughs> I love your, it, I can I, tell you. No, I love your riffs on the middle way. And so speak to us a little bit about how this has worked with you on your path. And then even though we're, you're already hitting on it a little bit, say a little bit more about how this is informed and actually transformed the way you live. Yeah, it has totally transformed the way I see my world and my mind, everything. That's what's interesting. And I really am glad you brought this up because people think this is abstract, but you know what I feel? It takes you out of abstract concepts into a more direct relationship with re reality. Absolutely. That's what I, I've noticed because how you understand emptiness is through looking at the nature of relationship. Hmm. How are you and how's your mind relation, in relationship to this world? And I first, my first Majemaka teaching, I was 23 years old and a Kongfrumche and I had just met like a, a, some weeks. We only knew each other for some weeks and we're sitting on this hill and he put his two finger index fingers together, kind of like and make a triangle, like the roof of a house. Mm -hmm. And he said, Lizzie, is this one or two? And I thought, you know, what kind of trick question is this? What is he asking me? So I just said, honestly, what came to mind? And I said, well, you can't say it's two uh, because uh, it's one shape, but you can't say it's one uh, shape because it's made of two fingers. And he said, that's great. He was really happy. <laughs> and I thought like, what the hell does that have to do right. with spirituality? <laughs> right. And he never said anything else, right? Oh, wow. That little teaching haunted me for so many years. Hmm. So that was an open question. I started to, to dig in. I started to study. And I tell you, I really had to work hard, you know, to kind of understand what he was getting at. But throughout these 35 years, I, this has opened up my life in a way that it's magic. I want to say it's magical because it opens up that kind of where you've, you know, I think everybody understands what it means to feel connected, to feel humble and interested. Like, I think people don't pay enough atten attention to the state of their mind. But if they did, they would recognize that these are the qualities that are really, really precious. Hmm. You know, open, connected, 
humble, you know, intelligent, insightful, um, all of this. And when you look at other people's mind, don't you like somebody who's like that? Or do you like a knower who thinks they know, you know, I always think like sitting at a dinner table across from a knower is like hell for me. <laughs> you know, because all the information is flying at you right. and you can't, like, there's no space. There's no creativity happening. I don't appreciate that aspect of the mind. So I think like we, this is very practical, as you said. It's very, very practical um, knowledge. And, you know, when we look at something and we reify it, we think we know what it is. Yeah. Then that's how our negative emotions arise. Like I said in the book, you know, when, when they train the military to go off to war, they're trained to reify or objectify the enemy, to hate the enemy, to think the enemy is bad intrinsically from its own side, you know? But if you start to look at the, oh, this is a good thing for me to say, the open dimensionality of anything or anyone. This is how Gunther translated emptiness. Mm, open open dimensionality. Instead oh, okay. of one dimensional, which is oh, what okay. happens when you concretize, Open dimensional means it all depends on the context. It all depends on the relationship. It all depends on, it's like when you start to look at that the person is not just evil, but they're somebody's son, they're somebody's father. You look into their eyes, you see their humanity, you see that they're breathing. You know, you wonder what are the causes and conditions that brought them to this place? What is their story? After a while, it brings out your humanity. Mm. That's moving out of, uh, a confusion or delusion into the nature of emptiness. Yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. I, and phew, one thing that, that comes to mind around all this too, um, Elizabeth, that I think is worth touching into, both in terms of proper inquiry and the discoveries that it leads us to and its connection to openness slash emptiness. And that is that what is the role or the relationship or the place of fear in all this? Because sometimes these questions, um, they're a little bit unsettling. They're, they're, yeah. I think they're really the greatest questions are not, you know, they're not the comfortable ones. They're the ones like you were talking about yeah. earlier. They, they, they get to you that, that actually even provoke yeah. some disquietude. So, so talk to us a little bit about, about the place of fear in all this. It, it, in fact, even, even if fear could be part of the qualification of the proper investigation. Um, because mm -hmm. the reason I mention this is because when, when I look again, etymologically, look, I'm, I'm really interested in the nature of fear. Um, yes. It comes from a root that means fair as in toll. And to me, both doctrinally and experientially, when I start looking really deep and going really deep, there, there's some existential anxiety slash fear that's yeah. kind of percolating underneath the whole thing. So maybe a little bit about that in your path and just some tips about how to work with this. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's this one, um, I know Trung Prambache gave said this one thing that was so interesting that, uh, is, is funny. I feel it's funny what he said. I was looking at how to say it properly in my book. It's in here somewhere, but he said, you know, you're falling through the air, no parachute, nothing to hold on to. That's but the bad. bad news is, yeah, the bad news is you're falling through the air, no parachute, nothing to hold on to. The good news is there's no ground. Right. Brilliant. So the, the interesting thing is that what's fear, what makes us afraid is that we're holding on to something that actually doesn't exist in that way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So how do you 
find that island of refuge between the two or beyond the two extremes is through seeing that you're in relationship. Hmm. Do you see what I mean? I if you're I... in relationship, you can't, it's not that you exist independently because you're in a relationship, but you can't say you can't exist either because here behold the world of appearances and possibilities is functioning in this extraordinary way with so much pleasure and pain and all of that beauty and grief and all of it, you know, it's happening. Um, so, you know, there, there, I think fear comes from clinging. Yeah. It, that's what the Buddha says. If, uh, that things exist is one extreme that they do not is another, but I, the Tathagata, except neither is or is not. And I declare the truth from the middle position. So in the Buddhist path, on the Buddhist path, from beginning to end, whatever you're practicing, it all has to do with finding out how to be in relationship to the world around you. So one way is to uh, examine and investigate the nature of reality, which is more of what we've been talking about, mm -hmm. which I like to say, looking at things realistically. Yeah. The other aspect of Buddhist practice has to do with how do we, how do we treat others? How do we treat ourselves? You know, what kind of activities bring joy to us and uh, um, uh, evoke compassion and interest and understanding? And, you know, we're, we're doing these relational practices that um, nourish and um, guide us and hold us in the boundaries of our intention. So there's two things happening at once, always. There's looking at the world to the relative, the relational relationship. Like you think of relationship is warm, hmm. you know? So, so people kind of hang out in the emptiness side. They forget that things are empty because they're in relationship. You know, because things are leaning, they don't have an, uh, a, a singular permanent intrinsic identity because they're leaning. However, it's because they are empty that th things are empty that things can arise. Because if things were independent or singular or permanent, they'd be inert. They couldn't move. That's right. So you see the irony of this, that the fear actually is displaced. Yeah. It comes from misunderstanding. So I think, you know, you don't have to jump into emptiness. Just slowly practice the Dharma slowly learn to cultivate and move out of the contraction, contracting into the self. Because, you know, when we talk about holding to things as intrinsic and holding tightly to the self, it's not just conceptual, it's energetic, it's emotional, it's visceral. You know what I mean? Absolutely. And as we serve the world, as we extend kindness, as we care about others, we're actually stepping out of that. Uh, contraction into the nature of contingent reality. And as we move out into contingency and understand our true identity and our true citizenship, that's what it means to walk into the nature of emptiness. You can't separate relationship and emptiness. It's like water and ice. Absolutely. I, I just, it's really just couldn't be said any more elegantly, Elizabeth. So as we continue to tout um, openness in, in all its manifestations. What are some of the shadow elements? What, what are some of the near enemies that, that can booby trap us? Um, you know, I have this kind of maxim, very common one, wherever you find light, you will find shadows. Yeah. The brighter the light, the darker the shadow, and, and openness is pretty bright. There's a lot of light here. So yeah. talk to us a little bit about near enemies, places where... Um, 
spaciousness, openness can transform into spaciness, that sort of thing. I mean, where, where are some traps in, in, in this journey of opening? Yeah. Well, there's, there could be traps in the journey. I don't think there's traps in the ability to rest in the nature. Mm -hmm. If you're able to bear that, like, nature of contingent, infinite nature of contingent relationships. Mm -hmm. like, it's like, um, you know, let me just give an example, but then I, I will uh, I'll address that because I think it's such a good question. It's like, it's hard to bear pain and it's hard to bear beauty. Hmm. You know, both equally, I think. It's hard to stay open in the face of pain and beauty. Like we think, well, pain is hard, is hard. We understand that. But you know, what, what do we do when pain arises or when there's something we don't understand? We either try to fix it. And I'm not saying it's not, it's, we, should, we should be inactive. I think we should respond 100%. But when I say fix, I mean the idea is to bring it to a static state, a peaceful equilibrium, which is not possible if everything leans, right? right. So we try to fix it. Then when we can't fix it, like it's like a foreign aid, you know, somebody going off to, to like a Peace Corps workers, they get very disappointed because they go into a village and they try to fix something. And then it's so complex, so much complexity. They're people, humans, they have their own culture. So there's, it's so lively, you know, so you can't fix it or change it mm -hmm. in a static way. They get, we get disappointed and we fall into despair or we check out, you know, that's what we, and habitually do when we see pain. When we see beauty, it's like you want to capture it. You want to take a picture. You could hardly just sit there and look at a mountain. You know, you need to sketch, you know, do something with it. Or, you know, sometimes we, we just have all kinds of feelings of dissatisfaction around our experience. So I think that what, what this is saying is that the ability to bear both pain and beauty, to be able to accommodate all experience without shutting down that's the practice and that's the experience of emptiness or prajnaparamita it doesn't i don't think it has a shadow place mm -hmm. because it accommodates shadow and yeah. beauty it doesn't discriminate between that in a way it utilizes everything to open and allow it to open it up and reveal it to you so in that way i wouldn't say there's shadow on the path however there are so many pitfalls like you might think, oh, everything's empty, so it doesn't matter what I do. Right. But we would say every, because everything's empty, it means it's in relationship. And if everything is in relationship, everything matters to what you do. Right. You have a bigger sense of responsibility. Or we, we associate emptiness with nothingness, like a vacuum. Uh -huh. But life doesn't happen in a vacuum. That's just a concept. We've never even experienced nothingness, but we still fear it you know? Yeah, absolutely. So yeah. This, ties, this ties into what I thought was one of the best sections in your book that, oh. that also ties in um, to what's happening in the world right now, which is that, that section on digesting experience. And, and yeah. I thought that was really beautiful where really what you're talking about here is uh, our capacity to digest both pain and, and beauty. And, and honestly, I, I play with this a little bit now. Elizabeth, using the idea of authentic consumerism. That, uh, <laughs> this, this is genuine consumerism. Everything else is a mere substitute. You know, it's basically distraction mm -hmm. therapy, it's avoidance strategy. But fundamentally, to me, it seems like what we want to just consume um, properly is the, the full 
experience of life itself. And, and the reason I toss this into the mix now is because, you know, we're living in a, in a time that could not be more charged with the virus and the political yeah. upheaval and the social unrest and, and the racism. And I mean, everything is coming to the surface. Talk to us a little bit about using, transforming obstacle into opportunity and the proper means for digesting this experience that right now is, you know, it, I'm so full, right? Right, right. So I do, I do. It's like, I have to go on media diets. I have to go on news diets. I yeah. have to, you know, I have to titrate my experience. So talk to us a little bit about um, the processes of, of digesting experience and how this relates to what's happening in the world today. Yeah, well, I think there's a relative aspect and then there's a more, a bigger, a bigger kind of, I mean, relative is big too. Uh, the, you know, you said sometimes you have to go on a news fast, you know, I do too. I totally have to. And in fact, I don't even watch the news. I have a, some friends who are really discerning and they just send me articles every day. So I don't have to, I do, it's already been kind of uh, sorted through for me and I just rely on them. But I think we need to look at our life and we have to organize our life in a way that's nurturing and sane and healthy for ourselves and others. And I think, you know, the Bodhisattva path has a lot to do with that. Um, I mean, I think everything is important, the way we eat, the way we treat each other, the way we look at ourselves, being kind and gentle and loving. And I think every day we need to look for opportunities to serve. We need to, you know, if we can't find a place to serve, we can pray for others. We can wish others well. We can do things remotely. I just think we need to look at ourselves as a citizen of all relationships, mm. you know? And I find all day long, there are ways in which I can serve. Even living out in this somewhat remote area that I do, of course, I have my mom that I have this great opportunity of, I can serve her, she's in hospice. And, you know, I, I go to spend overnight and, you know, feed her. And it's like an honor, you know, for me. It's hard sometimes, but it's an honor you know, to do that, but also with like my, the bees in my garden and the bugs and the, I don't know, it just, every, every kind of being you encounter and not even beings, it could be plants, it could be just respect for the world in which we live. Because the more we respect it, the more it nourishes us and the more it seems sacred, you know? So there's that part of it, that, that that's, we need to create a container. We can't just throw ourselves out there and say, this is life and digest it, you know? Right. You have to have bound, like, I don't know, boundaries, the word boundary is just a way of organizing life to be sane. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, I think, yeah, I'm going to do this, I'm not going to do that. And, you know, to really be mindful and discerning about what's helpful and what isn't. And then the, the bigger thing is to maybe allow, train yourself to relax so that we can, you can let things arise without being reactive. So that's what meditation is. It's everything we've been talking about. If you poise your mind to be open, you know, usually when we're sitting in meditation in the beginning, when things arise, we either want to suppress it or put a lid on it, or, you know, we decide whether it's good or bad, you know, we, or we spin out into thought, we try to avoid it. But meditation is the ability to relax and allow things to reveal themselves to you because you don't know what it is unless you do that. You know, and Absolutely. that that's really what this is all getting at. And then, and then how, you know, here's, here's an interesting thing in terms of like potential near enemies around all this, Elizabeth. 
is, I mean, there, there is a place for drawing lines. I mean, mm-hmm. and, and again, what I'm clicking on here is uh, being open enough to realize the, on one level, the irreconcilability of being both open and closed. That there, mm-hmm. there are times when we have to say no. There are times when we have to draw boundaries. We have to draw lines in the sand. And so to me, it's like, you know, the, 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 the brilliance of openness is having a mind and heart large enough where seemingly irreconcilable tenants um, can actually be uh, witnessed, can actually be lived, that, we can, that we, yeah. we can be open, we can be closed, we can, be, we can live in these two dimensions. And I mean, even biologically, if we didn't have this, you know, we are open systems, but we do have skins, our, 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 yeah. our cells have membranes. There are mm-hmm. boundaries, and, and yet those boundaries bump, bump up against each other. And so um, maybe talk to us a little bit about that, working between those two. Uh, you know, it's like kind of the middle way thing. Middle way not meaning finding your way between them. Exactly, But, yeah. but basically somehow transcending and including or, or being able to yeah. both. Yeah, exactly. You know, when I think of open, I guess, you know, sometimes we can, yeah, I guess we can think of, it's almost like the sky. It doesn't create or destroy anything. It just yields. Um, But what I think, what what I'm talking about here is when the mind is poised as an open question, it's extremely discerning. I think clear discernment and skillful means comes from what we're talking about. This is where, again, it gets a little dualistic, like it's either opened or it's restrictive. Right. And open means that anything can happen. And restrictive means you have to make some things not happen if you can, I guess. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think when I, I talk about open, to me, the experience of being open in this kind of way means that the natural creativity is released natural insight, natural skillfulness is created. And skillfulness requires uh, creating boundary and, you know, making decisions and making choices. So openness is not just this kind of vague, anything can happen kind of hippie type of openness. Mm -hmm. This is like who we are at the height of our intelligence. And I feel when my mind is open, I'm at my clearest. Choices come to me, things come to me. I write a book based on having an open mind you know that's where the creativity and the the kind of knowing comes from so there's this tendency to think that openness disables our intelligence whereas here in this tradition what we're talking about you know openness is just a word i'm using it could be prajna right i'm talking about prajna is really the open question is prajna and why i don't just say open but i say question too is because a question is always discerning It's not just anything. It's very specific. Absolutely. You know, there's, there's discernment involved. You know, I, what, what really a, a playful humor story comes to mind, Elizabeth, with uh, my teacher, Kempo Rinpoche. You know, Kempo Social Gansu. Yeah, he's wonderful a, teacher. Oh, my goodness. Master. And he used to, when I, I studied with him for 14 years, doing, you know, two-week sessions every year, incredible body of teachings. And one thing, one thing he did that it took me the longest time to figure out like, what is he doing? <laughs> it ties into what you're talking about is, is he'd be riffing along and, and then he would just, you know, the translator would do his thing and then, and then he would stop 
And he would literally, he would literally open his mouth. His mouth would like drop open. And he would sit there with this completely vacuous look in his face. And, and it, sometimes this, this would last 20, 30 seconds, a minute. And then all of a sudden something would, you know, like um, ping and, and he would then just like start into this next like brilliant like riff of teachings. And, and I realized, again, I, I might be completely imputing or projecting what was going on, but somebody can't do what you're talking about. And I noticed this myself in my own writing and con uh, formal contemplation mm -hmm. is, you know, contemplation is not always just this kind of laser-like intensive focus. It's, it's almost a little bit like hitting the gong with, the, with the, the clarity of the investigation, the question, sending my mind in that way, and mm -hmm. then resting in the openness of the hum, right? And yeah. then what, what I figured Rinpoche may be doing is simply like the image came to mind is that he opened his mind, you know, like this complete, utter, tranquil pond where there isn't even a ripple. And then all of a sudden, some insight from who knows where. I mean, you know, maybe Padmasambhava, maybe Manjushri, maybe the Buddha, who knows? Yeah. Some little pebble would, would drop into his mind. And then all of a sudden, he was off on the next kind of level of insight. And I have found that this type of my own practice, that this type of openness and receptivity to, to the little droplets that arise in my own mind, um, has helped me tremendously with insights where it's, it's in a certain way I step aside, I step out, out, outside and just allow this natural openness. Exactly. Where, where then this kind of little flash pebble, whatever you want to call it, I'll say, oh, there it is. There it is. And exactly. it, often, it very much feels like it's not coming from me. That on one level, that's no surprise because there is no me, but I think you get what I'm saying, right? I totally get what you're saying. Yeah, it doesn't come from a knower place. Right. And this is, this is what like, I'm kind of arguing against, is that being a knower is not really true insight. There's another way of knowing, and this is what we're trying to access. So you're, you're talking about something that people have known, like the muse, right? Yes. Yes. What happens when we step aside from our own egoic process? and allow the tremendous relationship we have to the world of infinite contingencies to reveal itself to us. And, you know, we're not one and we're not two from the world. We arrive, the self and other, you know, inner and outer arise independence. And there's this creative process that needs to happen. So we have to let it. And practice is a lot like that. And creativity is like that. And we should be living our life as a practice and, and allow for creati creativity as part of that practice, like how we respond to people, how we make choices, how we look at the world. We're, we're trying to access the best of what we can, we can access in our own being, you know? Yeah, and sometimes accessing that is, is just allowing. I mean, it's exactly. really just opening and allowing. It, it's, mm -hmm. it's like the paradox of effort. Exactly. That, you know, in many ways, you know, we talk about um, the irreducible instruction being one of openness and relaxation. And yeah. then we have the, you know, the oxymoron or the paradox of the path. Well, where's the role of effort? And, and for me, Elizabeth, I, I wonder how this lands with you. Really, the, the role of effort is, is really um, creating or, or allowing, I'll use the word creating because there's effort involved, simply atmospheres, holding environments that allow for this type of spaciousness. And so that's, yes. that's where the, the juxtaposition of of effort you know, in relaxation, relative and absolute aspects come into play. Because you know, if you're trying too hard, or if really on the deepest levels, if you're trying at all, um, you're, it, it's just, it doesn't work. 
Um, so is, is that, does that resonate with your own practice and path? Yeah, I think it resonates with the practice. It resonates with the tradition, because if you really think about it, when we, and I don't want to get too much into the Vajrayana at all, because I don't usually, but, you know, when they talk about the different wisdoms, well, there's still the wisdom of discernment. There's the wisdom of the dark, you know, seeing the nature of things at the same time. There's also the wisdom of effortless activity. You know, this is what arises when we rest, when, when our prajna or our jnana, our wisdom is when we're operating from that, when we know who we are in relationship to the, the world we live in, you know, we know our true identity, then all these wisdoms arise naturally without effort. You know, it's part of the, the expression of the nature. But this is something we have to experience, you know, and that's, that's the point of all this is to experience things, Absolutely. to have a direct experience. Absolutely. And so as we start to wind this up, I, I, I've returned to a, a, a kind of a pet question I had decades ago that, that I released and then I'm, I'm starting to ask again when I'm in the uh, environment of really sensitive thinkers, contemplatives. And, and, and please forgive me if, if I, I, when I ask this question, but we've been talking about so many foundational kind of irreducible teachings in this last hour or so. But as a kind of thought experiment, what the reason I ask this question is every time I receive an answer, because it's so pithy, I remember. Um, and so these are, it's a kind of a nintig hard essence contemplation um, that is the following. And that is that, Elizabeth, if, if you were to suddenly realize, like right now, you only have a minute left to live, what would be the irreducible expression of your teaching? The mind of an open question. <laughs> see how quickly that came yeah no of course i know i, I have 100 percent confidence <laughs> that that's what that is you know i'm just pointing to the mind uh that doesn't the the, the mind that that knows how to relate to its truth you know to the yeah. truth of how things are um yeah no 100 percent without that's hesitation fantastic. that's fantastic <laughs> I love it. I love it. And so as we start to um, close this out, tell us a little bit more about what you're doing, how we can support you, what, what some oh, of your you. current projects are, because you're yeah. always doing the coolest things. So oh, really, uh, thank you. Let us know what you're up to. We, we want to support you in whatever way we can. So what are the current hot topics and projects and writings? Yeah, well, I'm not writing a book right now. I have the, the logic of faith that came after the power of an open question, but I have my podcast and guess what it's called? Open question. <laughs> it's called Open Question, A Call to Inner Brilliance. Mm. And um, I, you know, I started, I really wanted to also not just interview uh, Buddhists, but I, I, I talked to a lot of indigenous people and uh, some other people. Um, you know, I've only done seven episodes. I've, the seventh one's coming out Tuesday. Um, and some of them are guided meditations and just talking about uh, the, the, the nature of open questioning. So that's all online and, and anybody can get that on any platform or on my website, elizabethmedicinomgill.com. You just go to the podcast section. Um, and then I started a nonprofit, like I told you, the Middleway Initiative is called, and it's all on these Middleway teachings. Um, that we've been talking about here. And I'm gonna give my first teaching on um, September 26th. 
Yeah. Um, but the website's not up yet. We're, we're trying to finish it this weekend. So it's called the Middleway Initiative. And I think you could access that, just Google it in or on, through my website too. Cool. Um, and then I something really exciting. Uh, I'm going to be giving uh, a teaching called the Art Sutra. Oh, wow. <laughs> because, you know, I just, we just talked about creativity and the nature, right? Yeah. So we, and I love the Heart Sutra. So what I'm doing, my brother is an amazing musician and he did three renditions of the Heart Sutra with music. It's beautiful, mm. beautiful. And one is in English, one's in Portuguese and one's in Spanish because he speaks Portuguese and Spanish. Wow. And I'm going to make this available to all people who speak Spanish, Portuguese or English um, in November. That should be up on my website too. And my friend Tatiana Krizmanich in the mm -hmm. afternoon is going to teach kind of like Dharma art. So I'll be teaching in the morning and we'll be doing some reciting of the Heart Sutra in those languages. And then in the afternoon, do some, uh, do some uh, like she, and she's amazing the way she teaches art and natural creativity, which is what we just talked about. That's fantastic. And, and all the yeah. while you're, you're still retreat master at, at something thing, right? You're still involved. Yeah. <laughs> I've been so great. busy. Your plate is so, so wonderfully full. And so really, you know, I, I want to close by um, sharing with our listeners in, in this really wonderful book called Dakini Power, Elizabeth is featured, um, is one of the really uh, kind of major figures in the world of the transplantation of Tibetan Buddhism in the West and underneath the chapter for Elizabeth is the is the subtitle "A Wonder Woman Hermit," and <laughs> I think that's so you really are you really are the Wonder Woman. It, it's just it's such a <laughs> thank you. That's so sweet. You, you bring so much to this world. Your your brilliance illuminates everybody who's fortunate enough to be in contact with you. So big thanks for for me and from all of us in our community. Um, and I will definitely bring you back because I, I really want to get back in and discuss with the kind of time that warrants the topic, um, the logic of faith, because this, this book mm. also in a relatively short, you know, set of pages hits on some really important points. And I, I didn't want to dilute what we're talking about today with the richness of that book. So yeah. with your kind permission, I'll bring you back of course. Um, later and let's okay. take another round at this because I, I learned so much every time I talk to you. And, and uh, again, on behalf of all us, all us big thanks power of gratitude and uh, until next time thank you andrew i promise i'll come back i love talking to you i always do and you ask great questions too really all the good best ones. okay yeah. bye thank you well that wraps up for today i wanted to thank elizabeth for joining me and especially i wanted to thank all of you for joining us if you like this episode, be sure to check out all the other offerings on my club. But until next time, pleasant dreams.